Judith Sherman here. And Jim Snikowski. And we are talking with you about finding and releasing your fabulous self. Whether you want to be more fabulous in your business and work life, your love life, parenting, wealth, health, you name it. It is so important to understand how to find and release your fabulous self because what Jim and I see and everyone we've ever used this phrase with either chuckles, chortles, grimaces, in some way acknowledges that they understand all too well what we mean when we say the fear of being fabulous. It's epidemic. So we want to start by sharing with you how we got involved with the whole pursuit of overcoming the fear of being fabulous. The fear of being fabulous is indeed epidemic, and that's why it's so important to be able to find and release your fabulous self to have the life that you truly want. We got interested in this because Jim and I, as counselors and therapists, saw in our clients over and over and over the impossibility as as they experienced it of moving forward, whether it was in relationships or in their career. They would sabotage themselves. They saw the pattern. They couldn't do anything about it. And we found ourselves helping them in a very unique and particular way. And they would remark that they'd been in a lot of other therapy or they'd done a lot of workshops or read a lot of books and nothing had touched them the way our work was touching them. Well, at the same time, we were looking at our own fear of being fabulous. Jim and I both in our 20s had been actors, and some of you may have heard our stories about how we blocked our acting careers and said no when we should have been saying yes, Uh, getting in our own way, not knowing that we were even doing that. But looking back, it is so obvious that the fear of being fabulous was preventing us from having large acting careers that were just sitting there waiting for the taking in our cases, and uh, we couldn't go forward. We also came to our own marriage with less than stellar backgrounds. Jim has two divorces before we married, and I dated for 30 years and didn't get married until I married Jim in my early 40s. Well, why was that going on? Uh, We now know it was a case of the fear of being fabulous, but I didn't know it then. I just was frustrated, angry, and depressed. And another place we noticed it is when we started to attend Internet marketing conferences because we left the therapeutic work behind that we'd done for years and became Internet marketers to people like therapists and counselors and, and musicians and artists and people who don't know a lot about marketing. And so we are servicing that particular segment of the market. And we would go to conferences and we would see people buying back-of-the-room packages, which I'm sure you're all familiar with in one way or another, and they would go back and buy more and more and more and more packages. We actually saw a woman at one conference spend $10,000 buying almost every package that was being offered at the back of the room. And we looked around and we talked to people, and it was thought by those people who were offering those packages, which we felt was a little uh, cheesy to say the least, that they anticipated that 3% of the people buying the packages would actually make use of them. 97% would come back and buy more because they were unable to make use of them. 
And you can attribute that to laziness or, or uh, ignorance or inexperience, but we think it's overcoming the fear of being fabulous is at the heart of that kind of problem because something deep inside did not permit some of those people to go forward with the packages that they were purchasing, packages that Judith and I purchased and were able to use with success. So we look at this whole issue of, uh, as Jim said, the sort of 97% people who want release, want freedom, want more success, and aren't able to make the progress they want. And then there is the 3% that are able to utilize certain kinds of programs. And, And I just want to say that we're all seeing an explosion of desire for greater success, greater freedom. There are more and more and more motivational seminars springing up all the time. And we're all hearing, of course, about the secret and the law of attraction. The the book Think and Grow Rich has had a resuscitation. Uh, You know, it's become popular again. And there's a lot of focus on positive thinking. The problem is that it doesn't tap into the deeply buried issues that cause the fear of being fabulous. As Judith said, the problem is a lot of those processes don't go deep enough. They never get to the unconscious. Judith and I spent 20 years as therapists working primarily with unconscious content because that's what therapy is really about. If you're not working with unconscious content, you're essentially coaching. You're giving guidance and direction and say, go do this and go do that. But when there's a real problem and people are really, really stuck, it's all about the unconscious. And that's where we have isolated, and we've coined a couple of terms. We've isolated what we call allegiances and forbiddances. And an allegiance, and we're going to get into more detail about this, but the allegiance is that conviction or commitment or judgment that we make primarily unconsciously and primarily emotionally. And we are giving ourselves to that point of view, whatever that happens to be. You know, for example, someone says, I want to lose weight. Well, they want to lose weight, but they keep eating the wrong foods and they don't exercise. So that's an indication that there's something deeper and more important in their psyche than losing weight, no matter how much they claim they want to. And then on the other side of it, there are what we call forbiddances. Now, the forbiddance is just a a corollary. If you have an allegiance to go in one direction, you are forbidden by default to go in some other direction. And, for example, let's just take losing weight. If you are, if you have an allegiance to something that does not provide you the opportunity to actually lose the weight and you want to head in that direction, say stop eating wheat or start exercising or something, you cannot consist, you cannot persist in that direction because it goes against the allegiance you have, which is keeping the weight on your body. That's a simple example. And one thing we know for absolute certain, and that is that the power of the unconscious will trump whatever you have going on in your conscious mind, no matter what it is. And in my example, I will lose weight. I'm dedicated and committed to losing weight. That is my conscious choice, and then I can't do it because the unconscious is far more powerful and it will trump the conscious 
every single time. And, and that's a very simple way of looking at why so many people find that they're even more frustrated after they've practiced positive thinking or they've gone to motivational seminars and they're practicing the techniques they've been taught, but it's not working. And a lot of people say there's no reason to be looking backwards. Don't, don't go looking back in your history. There's no point in examining where you came from. That's just a lot of psychobabble. Don't bother. Just reprogram your mind, and now you can go forward. Well, the problem is, and I would guess that almost everyone listening has had the experience of trying to reprogram your mind, trying to reprogram your behavior, and it not working. Perhaps it works for a few days, maybe it works for even a few weeks, but it doesn't last. Why? Because the unconscious that which was created early, early, early on for you has not been tapped into. Now, when Judith says early, early on, we mean childhood. So we're not beating around the bush here. And a lot of people think, as Judith said, that's just psychobabble. Oh, will you finally grow up and stop looking back over your shoulder? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that when those unconscious allegiances be, get set, and they generally get set, many of them get set in our very early years, you have to look back before you can find release. Now, one of the things you have to do is not blame anybody. You can't. If you get into the process of I'm blaming my mother, I'm blaming my father, I'm blaming the society, I'm blaming God, I'm blaming whoever it is that I can put the blame on, that is a way of descending against actually releasing what it is that's standing in your way. Blame is a defense. It makes you feel really victimized. It makes you feel really good to be able to say, it's not me, it's the other person, and it keeps you really, really stuck. So we're not talking about blame, but we are definitely talking about taking a look at where whatever it is you're stuck in originated. You know, I'm, I'm remembering uh, a few years back that I had a, a phone client uh, who was really sincere about creating greater success for himself than he'd ever been able to experience. And pretty quickly on, I learned that he was uh, a recovering uh, motivational event uh, addict. And what he had experienced, as he explained it, was that he would go to a particular motivational speaker's events with the hope that this time he would get it. This time he would be released. And every time he would buy all of the speaker's products at the back of the room take them home, and not even use them. 97% and 3%. He had the funds, the resources, to keep going back, and it didn't cross his mind that he was wasting his time and wasting his money, and that, in fact, he had shelves of products that were purportedly designed to release him, and he couldn't even use them. He just kept exhausting his finances. Now, what would cause somebody to do that? Really, take a moment and think about what I've just described. Not only is this person not being released into newer freedom and able to live a more fabulous life, in fact, he's losing capital. He's spending so much money going to these events and buying so many products that his bank account is going down, down, down. And this was someone of an age where that was not a wise thing at all. And when Judith said someone of an age, this was an adult, and I know who she's talking about. He was an older man and completely committed 
if you have lunch with him, to plans and ideas and, and escapes and releases that his life was going to be completely different. And last we heard that he was never able to get out of that loop, not because it's not possible and not because Judith didn't help him therapeutically, because she did, but because at one point he was unable to face into what it was that was really holding him back. Because when you do that, and, and this is really important, when you face into what's holding you back, the cliche is, oh, well, everything will be free and I'll just be able to move forward and do what I want and do it the way I want and get the love and the respect and the admiration and whatever. Well, what happens when you release it is you also, it'll take time for some of the habits to dissolve, but what you've done is changed your life. So if you have a habit that keeps you moving in a particular direction, we create psychological institutions, beliefs, ideas, preferences, attitudes, friends, religious convictions, political convictions. And then when you shift you have to take a look at a lot of that because a lot of it was you brought into your life relative to the, the, the conviction that you were holding that kept you stuck in place. We don't do that consciously. We don't know it, but that's what happens because effectively the conviction is like a pair of glasses. You see the world in a very particular and very specific way, and in that context, you build a life. Well, if you take those glasses off, then what? Then you can you have to look around at the life you've built, and some of it may no longer work. Now let's just use another example here. Before I I want to talk a bit about um, the brain fun- functioning of babies, but before I do, I just want to remind us all that the history of people who have won the lottery is not a very pretty sight. That typically people who win a lottery millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, are not able to hang on to that money. And in fact, statistically, there's some, I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me, some percentage that dig themselves into a deeper hole than they had before they won the lottery. In other words, they lost everything they won and went into some amount of debt or spending of monies that they had before the lottery winning and got back to what was normal or even less than normal than before the lottery. Why would that be the case? Why would that be statistically significant? Well, one of the things we want you to take a look at is that when baby humans are born, their brain function is not at all developed compared to the adult brain. So the baby brain is in development, not just in the womb, but once it, the baby is out in the life with mom, dad, siblings, other relatives, whatever the culture, whatever the environment is. So the brain of the baby is trying to function as well as it can, and it's being formed. It's being developed in this early environment. So I want you to really wrap your consciousness around the fact that your brain and its ability to function, its ability to be aware and and to think and make judgments was being formed in your early, not just months, but years. It's understood that a child cannot really make moral judgments until they are eight 
years old. Now, that's a norm. Some children are no doubt able to do it earlier and some later. But think about it. Eight years old before it's understood that a child can make a moral judgment. So before that, the brain is not fully formed. Now, to listen to what Judith says can be really horrifying. If, in fact, the brain is in development and there's some moment, let's say just for the sake of my example here, some traumatic moment, and the brain forms in, res- in response to and around that moment, then doesn't it appear like, well, that's that. And, it, and if that's the way the brain is, then that's the way you are. So settle down into whatever limit you have and live your life because there's nothing else you can do about it. Well, I say that because that's historically what was believed because it was believed, and not frankly until within the last, I would say probably half century, if not quarter century, it was staunchly believed, and it's still largely believed in the general population, that the brain is a fixed organ. And when the brain is fixed, it's final. However, within the last, whatever, couple of decades, three, four, two, whatever, I don't know exactly when these notions begin to change, but there's a phrase called brain plasticity. And what it means is that the brain is plastic, not plastic like, like you know, a plastic fork, but plastic in that it is malleable and changeable. And it takes work, but it is possible. So we are no longer... We are no longer trapped and in our destiny that are formed in the early years. Now, to be honest and to be transparent, to make those changes requires determination and effort. But it can be done. And a lot of people fall into despair because they don't think it can. Well, you can change. The brain is plastic and it can be moved. And the truth of the matter is when we make really profound decisions in our life, It's actually being recognized in scientific circles that those changes penetrate as deeply as the DNA. Now, I don't mean literally the the double helix because the double helix, which is the DNA strain, is what makes you who you are. That's not going to change. But behaviorally, it goes into the DNA, that's a metaphor, of the, of the behavior and you can actually change it. So brain plasticity is a release in terms of your thinking and your knowing that you can make the effort and you can make the changes that you want to make. Now another piece of this that we want you to take in here is that when you are little, you're not able to be very cognitive uh, in making the distinctions that you're making, it's largely an emotional experience because that's the more primitive part of the brain, the emotional part, and it's, it's where change best happens now in your emotional world. Unfortunately, a lot of the success gurus and a lot of the uh, in motivational seminars aim at cognitive change, but that's a more mature function of the brain and for the release of your fabulous self, it's going to happen more at the emotional level because that's where the programming got in in the first place. So those early convictions 
are very unsophisticated judgments. And I want to say this again. Judgments are what occur in those early convictions when the brain is being formed. There are judgments that are being made about self, about the environment, about what kind of a world it is out there. And judgments that we hold have the power to magnetize to us exactly what we hold in judgment. Now, I want you to really take that in because this is very, very serious. What we hold in judgment, and particularly when it's unconscious, acts like a magnet drawing to us exactly that that we hold in judgment. So until we can release the judgment, we continue to magnetize to us the very things that we don't want usually, don't like, don't want anything to do with, and yet it keeps coming. It keeps coming. So that's why self-exploration is so critical and why we congratulate you for being on this call and opening to yourself and examining how this issue touches your life because self-awareness only comes with the determination of having a larger life than you currently experience so that you can have that positive intention to go exploring deeper than you ever have before because I would bet that this call is not the first time that you've gone exploring into how can you have a larger life? How can you feel more freedom to go forward? How can you take on goals and objectives that you've never thought possible, but you, you know, in your mind's eye somewhere back there, you know that's the life you were intended to live. So we congratulate you for being on this call and being open to looking at this in a deeper way. And we're going to just keep emphasizing deeper because most people don't go exploring in the unconscious. Even the therapy and counseling that Jim and I have each experienced, goodness, we paid tons and tons and tons and tons of money to those therapists and and counselors, and uh, they did not take us deep enough. And the reason we have developed methods and concepts and perspectives that go deeper is because we needed to. And we are not saying this arrogantly. There are many good therapists out there, but the ones that we ran into, and so maybe it was a reflection of our own issues, but they didn't take us deep enough. And by that I mean we did not feel the sense of release that we were looking for. So we kept looking And the frustration kept mounting until we finally said, which most people who develop programs of this kind and most entrepreneurs and, frankly, most creative people finally end up saying, i got to do this myself. And so we started out on our own exploration. So at this point, what we've done in this call is lay out the foundation. And now we're going to start making the turn into what is possible. So what's the first thing you should look for as the first step in heading toward releasing yourself, 
well, I shouldn't say releasing is that's the, I shouldn't say releasing first because you have to discover and unpack whatever the whatever the holdback is, and the release will follow as a result. It's not an issue of deciding to release yourself because you can't. It's just imagine if you had handcuffs, your hands were in handcuffs, and there was no key. The first thing you would have to do is figure out how to unlock the handcuffs or to get them open because you can't release yourself as long as the handcuffs are there. You release yourself by opening up and unpacking the lock in the handcuffs, and this is all a metaphor. You unpack the lock in the handcuffs, which releases the hold of the two ends of the handcuffs, and they open up, and then you can leave. So you don't ever really release. The release is the reward. What you do is you unpack and discover where you are so that you know the territory. And generally speaking, when you really hit rock-solid gold in terms of who you are, in terms of the holdback, I mean, that often creates a release point in the sense of an awareness that you can't go back where you used to be, even though your habits will be there, and it'll take some time to work out the habits, but you can't go back because you've seen the freedom. You've seen at least the the, the limiting, limiting judgment or the limiting structure psychologically that's holding you back. So what do you do? What do you do? First thing you look to recognize are patterns, patterns of behavior. I'm sure you all have heard that, uh, that uh, sort of clippy definition of insanity, and that is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Well, the first thing you look for are patterns. You look for patterns in your behavior, in your thinking, in your friendships, in your relationships, in your objectives, in your vision, in your dreams, you start looking for patterns because the patterns are the expression of the unconscious holdbacks. And let me give you an example. This is one we, Judith, and when we do seminars, we often use because it's kind of humorous, but it's totally true. And it's called the French crawler problem, the vanilla French crawler problem. When I was a child, well, I won't start there. I'll start where I was in the trap. I love vanilla French crullers. And, of course, when there were times and when Judith and I had been together where I gained some weight and I wanted to lose it, and there I was eating vanilla French crullers, claiming I wanted to lose weight. And if you try to take my vanilla French crullers away from me, you have a real battle on your hands. And yet, I'm saying I want to lose weight. So what I did was I began to look for the patterns and I began to look for, for example, what behaviors, what feelings, what thoughts were happening on the, when, that were the onset of a, my need to go to the bakery and get a vanilla French crawler. And I'm not saying this literally, although sometimes it was quite literal. What were the thoughts and the feelings just before? What was it that I was needing and wanting that the vanilla French crawler was supplying? And so in terms of my exploration, what I remembered, I came from a household that was pretty emotionally cold and clearly emotionally distant. And I was emotionally lonely and pretty hungry. 
And what my mother would do on occasion would send me off to the local bakery in, in the, in the, in the little area of Detroit where I lived. And they would make the most fabulous vanilla crunch, French colors. And I would go out and she would send me, I would get a half a dozen donuts. I would bring them home. She would have coffee. I would have milk because I was a boy. She would have coffee. I would have milk. And those were some of my cherished moments in my childhood. And the vanilla French colors were an attempt as an adult to fill the longing that I would feel and the substitute for a healthy sense of connection and closeness was was supplied by the vanilla French color. That was all unconscious. I didn't know that. Once I was once I recognized that relationship I was able to either take a vanilla French color or not, depending upon what I chose in the moment, but I at least had the opportunity to not choose it and go looking toward Judith, for example, for a deeper sense of closer connection instead of filling in that loneliness with a vanilla French color. So that's an example of a pattern, and the pattern is the key, it is actually the doorway back to whatever it is that you're longing for, that the pattern is actually a repetitive failure of trying to get. And, and I want to point out that the uh, vanilla French curler is the topical piece of the pattern. Yes. And then you need to be looking at what's underneath the topical part, which was the lonely, empty, hungry little boy who was trying to take care of himself in some topical way with donuts that wasn't getting at the real issue at all. And I, as I'm listening to you, Jim, I'm thinking about how, for so many of us, school just reinforced whatever patterns were in that brain groove already of being good, being obedient, staying in our chairs, staying uh, quiet in school, not standing out not, and I want to reinforce this, not standing out. Because what we're after is to help you stand out, to stand up, stand out, to shine, to be as fabulous as you can be in your life. And that means departing from the mediocre, departing from whatever is considered normal, and being in your own fabulous groove. So we have to recognize that there are also patterns that got stuck in place culturally also that reinforced the early, early, early patterns, but they just got the groove even deeper, whether it was in school or in our culture that just loves mediocrity. In in, uh, Australia, they call it the tall poppy syndrome. If you're going to stand out and be a tall poppy in Australia, what they talk about is you're going to get chopped down and made to be the same height as all the other poppies. Now, A pattern is a paradox because the pattern is both the expression of the limit and it is also the release point. Now, when I say release point, I don't mean the ultimate release point, but it is the first step in the release of what you want because when you look at the pattern, you can follow the pattern, pay attention to it, trust that pattern is occurring over and over again for some real reason. Do not put yourself down. Don't don't castigate yourself for the pattern. The pattern is there 
because it represents, as I said earlier, an allegiance. And allegiances are, just as the word implies, something that have in them a sense of value. Even though, for example, the the French color, let's use that as an example, it had the value of being close and warm emotionally in a family that wasn't. Now, 25 years later, it doesn't have that value anymore, but the pattern is in place and the habit is set. There's another phrase we use called negative head talk. And that's that voice that chatters inside your head that says you shouldn't do this or who do you think you are or something along those lines. Some kind of self-condemning voice inside your head. And the way you – that's another pattern. That's The voice is a is um, the head talk. What you hear in your head is the voice of a, of a roadblock. It's a voice of an allegiance. And when you know that, you start paying more attention to it. It's just not chatter that you say, oh, my God, here it comes again, or go away, or whatever. You actually say, wait a minute here. Wait a minute. This is really the voice of a place I'm stuck, and I had better listen, because if I listen carefully, I might be able to find my way back. And if you listen really carefully, you will find your way back, and you can undo it. And when I say way back, I don't mean in every instance back to being a child, because uh, patterns can get set at any time. I just mean back before the moment that you're listening to it, because it does not represent something in the future. It represents something in the past. And you listen for the, the, the negative head talk and for the patterns that will – and that negative head talk will literally shed life on the judgment that you are clinging to. And you are clinging to that judgment, not neurotically. You are clinging to that judgment intelligently. And please go back to the French color example and bring one to mind of your own while we're talking so you can actually apply what we're saying to something that's going on in your life right now. If you look at the French color, and there was this lonely boy, this emotionally hungry, lonely boy looking for connection and got it at the times when the donuts were eaten, that's a real value. And so there's a connection made between emotional closeness and donuts. Why would I want to give up donuts? But eventually, you have to give up donuts because the connection only worked in that environment. Here, 25 years later, when I'm having a French color, I'm no longer in the kitchen in Detroit with my mother having a close moment. It only worked then. But until you're aware of that, you can't release it. You know, I, I'm, I'm really, um, again, taking in, as, as, we're, as I'm listening to us, the, the power of these patterns that go on in our lives. And one of the things I want to point out is that when we were little, when we were young, we all looked up to adults. We know the experience of looking up, whether we were looking up to our parents, grandparents, our teachers, whoever we were looking up to, we developed a pattern of bestowing on those people some authority, some kind of smarts, some kind of talent, something they had that we didn't yet have. Perhaps we honored them as having wisdom. Perhaps we honored them as having proper guidance for us. But we gave the bestowal, and the the key word I'm using that I want to underscore here, if you're taking notes, is we bestowed upon them intelligence, wisdom, success. They were the person we wanted to be like. 
The problem with that pattern, as we grow up and we actually become adults ourselves, is if we're not careful, and certainly Jim and I have watched in ourselves the pattern of bestowing on other people levels of wisdom and success that they, in fact, did not have. But because that pattern of bestowal was so ingrained that it was difficult to make judgments about who to learn from, who to study with, who to be in therapy with. So I want to underscore that there is this other pattern that interferes often with our ability to bestow on ourselves our rightful authority, our rightful genius, whatever it may be, whatever your genius is, whether it's in the arts or intellectual or healing, it doesn't matter what it is, you have your own particular genius. But I'm betting as I say this, many of you are going, oh, no, look at her go on, I don't have a genius, I'm just whatever. And that's the negative head talk that is getting in the way of you being able to bestow on yourself your own rightful authority, your own rightful fabulousness. But I want to point out that that results from this early patterning of bestowing on other people as having more than you do and not a a pattern of, of developing your own authority, being able to authorize yourself as how wise and talented you are. Speaking of genius, Albert Einstein said, you can't solve the problem with the same consciousness that created it. Another way to say it is you can't solve the problem if you're residing in the same mindset that created the problem. And the reason for that is obvious is because you're in the middle of it and you can't see very often the forest for the trees. And he also said that, well, he didn't say, he said imagination is more important than knowledge. Now, that's really important in what we're talking about because, first of all, if you take a really good close look at knowledge, knowledge is something that you already possess. And if you already possess it, it comes out of the past. And coming out of the past relative to some particular problem that you're trying to face or some kind of stuckness you're involved in, if it comes out of the past, it will have been developed and arisen to the surface of your consciousness from that context. So it will also be related to that past. And it only keeps you in the past. It's the imagination that opens the way to the future. But again... The imagination is only a tool. If you're really locked up someplace inside, then your imagination will, you can, you will use your imagination, and we all do, to essentially create the circumstances that justify and approve the being locked up. So, as you begin to unpack the past, and listen to this carefully, because this is an important point for anyone out there who's saying, oh my god, it's about the past again. It has to be about the past. It can't be about the future because where you are now is where you are stuck and that can only have happened before in the past. It's not coming from the future. So when you begin to unpack the past, in other words, when you begin to follow the patterns and you begin to spot what we call the holdbacks or the roadblocks, you open the possibility for imagining a new future. So... Take the simple example of the French color. 
when I finally realized what the French color, what, what I was attempting to do with the French color and by using the French color, and that I was looking for emotional closeness, and I'm married to a woman that I love dearly and I know loves me dearly, what the, it never crossed my mind before I understood to turn to her for this closeness because I didn't know it was about the closeness. I didn't know what it was about. So when I finally understood that, instead of a French color, maybe I got a hug from Judith or maybe a kiss from Judith or maybe she, I just told her what was going on and she just looked at me with those big eyes of hers that can make me melt sometimes. That's how the future begins to present different opportunities. And I don't mean like the future's out there as some being. You and your future become different. But it can't become different until you start stepping away from the past that you had created psychologically, spiritually, sexually, physically. You have to, re you have to unpack that to allow the possibility of the future and your movement into the future to be possible. And as you are able to discover the core of what is holding you back and be released from that, what we know happens, and we've worked with so many people as well as our own experience, what we see happen is that there is an expanded room in your imagination to dream larger and larger and freedom to ask for help and guidance, which has been withheld from, from earlier times when you felt like you couldn't, and you can receive the help that you've never been given before. Perhaps it even was there, but you couldn't uh, take it, you couldn't use it, but now you can. Your decisions become clear instead of cloudy so that you can actually achieve your goals. You can go forward with a momentum that you've never known before. And I'm talking about this largely through the experience that Jim and I have had over the years personally, but also in terms of all the people that we have coached and, and worked with, whether professionally about their business or about their relationships or health, issue, health issues. What we see lift very quickly is the sense of futility and the depression because there is an entirely new orientation to life that is empowering, that is enriching. And so you find yourself attracting more and more people who are living larger lives, living more fabulously, and you can move into a different circle of friends and business associates so that you're living a very different life than you have been permitted to live before. And, and, and you are able to receive more and more spiritual guidance, guidance. There's more of a trust that the world is a positive place, that the universe has your best interests at heart, and will give you guidance. You can open to that guidance because you are having a more solid and positive experience on this planet. Judith talked about decisions and judgments that we make as children. Well, we make these judgments and decisions as adults as well. By the time we're adults, however, they are pretty well conditioned by some fundamental decisions and judgments we've made. For example, is life friendly? Is this a friendly place? Are these people that I'm living with friendly? Are they on my side? Can they actually see me? Do they know me? Can I express myself around them? 
is God on my side or not? Is there such a thing as God? Such a, such a reality as God? There are fundamental judgments we make and largely made before we are sufficiently intellectually discriminatory to be able to really make some wise judgments. Because, for example, as I said, I lived in a family that was emotionally cold and distant. So at two years old, it might have really benefited me to say, oh, my God, look at this family. They are really cold and distant. I'm going to have to find my own emotional connection and support somewhere else. And, yeah, I'm stuck with them till I'm some age, but uh, I'm going to do my best to find it somewhere else. And, by the way, I'm not going to join it. And even more importantly, it's not me. But you can't do that. None of us can do that. So the judgments that we make early on stay with us. And they stay with us as sort of motivating, shaping forces in our life as we grow older. So, what have we talked about? Well, we've talked about the fact that people are stuck. And a lot of the techniques and the patterns that are offered don't go deep enough. And you have to look back to unpack what it is that you are, what's the psychological structure you're involved with to be able to experience a release. Judith talked about babies' brains aren't fully developed, so a lot of that happens in the developmental process. And by the way, that process generally lasts uh, physically. Well, actually, it lasts till about seven or eight, but it, it is largely done in the first couple of years. But the brain is plastic, so you can change. And how do you recognize these issues? How do you recognize where you are stuck? Well, you watch for patterns because the patterns are the voice of the stuckness, are the voice of the allegiance, and of course in them contain the corollary of forbiddance. And they are uh, they're paradoxical. They are a limit and a release. And the man we cherish as being extremely wise and gifted is our Einstein. And he said, you can't solve the problem with the same consciousness that you created it, so you've got to change your consciousness. And it's not about knowledge. Knowledge is really important, but knowledge is not the foundation. The imagination is the foundation that will help you unpack the past and release it so that you can have a different kind of future that Judith talked about where you are free to really find self-expression and in very many ways for a lot of people to really find self, let alone self-expression, right? and to find the capacity to move forward in directions and decisions that you make and not find yourself filled with ambition, filled with excitement, filled with energy, smashing into a wall and ending up right back where you always were. That's really possible, and the reason we know it's possible is because we've experienced it, and we've also helped other people get there. And so, only people doing this work, we are the only people doing this work, Judith and I. And when I say the only people, when I, we're not meaning that absolutely. There are other people, but we have developed a program whereby what we have just described is laid out in ways that can help you actually make these changes. And we've trademarked it because it is a technology that we have put together through our 20 years of working with the unconscious. And motivational seminars don't go deep enough. 
one of the major problems in the seminar business, if pe- people are really being uh, honest with you, is they don't understand why there can be such excitement. For example, at a seminar and people are weeping and sobbing or laughing and joyous, why it doesn't, why it doesn't sustain? How come it doesn't hold on? How come a week or two weeks later? And you can say, and you can see in a lot of the, uh, in a lot of the, uh, the religious uh, meetings, people have what appear to be miraculous events occur. At tent meetings. At what are used to be called tent meetings. But those ministers, those prophets, as they call themselves, also are baffled by why it can happen at the meeting, but it doesn't sustain. And the reason it doesn't sustain is because you cannot approach it topically. You have to go deep. And I just want to add, Jim, that when, when I've been thinking about uh, when you are able to follow this process that Jim and I have put together called Overcoming the Fear of Being Fabulous, what we've seen in our own lives is that while we made significant progress and, and experienced significant success, as we kept opening and kept opening and kept working with our own process, as some of you are aware, we have in the last several years gone into an entirely new life, a life we couldn't even have imagined just four years ago, three years ago. We would never have imagined that we would be doing the work we're doing today with soft sell marketing and doing conferences on bridging heart and marketing and and writing the book that we've just written that's coming out in April called The Heart of Marketing. It has come as a result of freeing up space inside both of our creativity, our imagination, our our capacity to blend relationship and psychology and marketing and spirituality in a way that we would never have thought we would be doing four years ago. So I want to reinforce that also when you free up this, this ability to be who you actually are, to be fabulous, you actually are not going to be certain what can happen for you, but we can assure you it's all going to be very positive and quite wonderful. And with that, we're going to thank you very much for taking the time to be on this call with us to open your imagination even further to the fabulous life that can be yours. I, too, say thank you for being with us because what we're talking about is really important, and we know it because we're living it, and we can offer it to you, and you can use it and open yourself up in ways that Frankly, you probably haven't even imagined yet. I know for a fact you haven't, because until you do, you can't imagine. But the imagination will be there to point the way to something new in your life. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 